Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you after a couple of weeks away. My family and I, we were out in Alberta for a few weeks, seeing my family for the first time in a year. Boy, did that feel good. Erica and the girls uh, left yesterday to go down to the States to see her family for the first time in almost a year. So I'm on my own for about 10 days. You know what that means? What's that? Meals are welcome. Dinner invitations. Even better yet, just drop the food right off at the doorstep. Just ring the doorbell. It's really the food I'm after, not fellowship. But uh, I'm kidding. We're going to have to learn how to be together again. Yeah, man, but it's good. It's good. We need to do this, and I'm so glad you're here, and I know some of you are here for the first time in a long time, maybe in over a year. Welcome back, and I know I'm seeing people that I haven't seen in a long time, and I don't know if you're like me, but like my mouth opens to use a name, and it's just not there right away, and you have that moment of panic where you're like, what is this person's name? Have you done that yet? So just a little tip, when I do that, I just say, hey, brother, hey, sister, because it's like sounds really warm and affectionate, and it sounds super spiritual, and it just really means I don't know your name. And so uh, if I call your brother or sister, you can kind of help me out there, kind of take the hint, but it is great to be together. Hopefully, uh, we'll see more and more. I know many of you are watching at home, and we're looking forward to welcoming you here in person hopefully sometime soon. And uh, it was great to come back and on the first day to be here at VBS. And, and as a fly on the wall, I don't really have any role, but I just kind of pop out of the office. And it's been so cool to see so many of our, our teenagers, you know, ages like 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, here every day serving. They got their blue volunteer shirt on, and uh, they're serving the kids. And they're serving. They don't have to. It's their summer break, but they're here Monday to Friday serving God. And that's just been so cool to see our young people kind of leading the way uh, in, in getting into that, the, the practice, the holy habit of service. So good on you, um, young people. All right, well, over the summer, we've been going in our summer series through the fruit of the Spirit, looking at these nine fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists for us in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. And uh, if you've been tracking in this series, you might expect that this morning we're going to look at the fruit of faithfulness. That's certainly what Daniel thought was going to (laughs) happen. I sent him an email late this week with the sermon information. One minute later, he rushes into my office. He says, hold on, you're not preaching about faithfulness? And I said, what? And then I sang him the song. Remember that Sunday school song? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Against such there is no law. (laughs) That's a pity clap. That's what you call that. (laughs) So what I learned this week is a pastor should never rely on the memory of a Sunday school song learned 35 years earlier to guide their sermon planning. Because I had memorized it wrong. This whole time, I've been singing the song wrong. So yeah, if you look in your Bible, it actually is faithfulness is the next one, but I was way too deep in sermon prep on gentleness to make the shift. 
So uh, we're going we're gonna to talk about the fruit of gentleness this morning, and, and Angela, God bless her heart, like I, she had printed all the kids' stuff with faithfulness, and I said, look on the bright side, Angela, you're ready for next week, already. And she didn't smile, she didn't laugh. <laughs> we're going to take a look this morning at the fruit of gentleness as we continue through this series, and I just want to remind you of the big idea of our series. The big idea is this, that the Christian life is marked not primarily by uh, knowledge accumulation, or by behavior modification, but by character transformation, okay? It's not primarily about what you know that makes you a disciple of Jesus. But there are certainly things that you need to know and to believe to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus, absolutely. But it's not primarily about that, and it's not primarily about what you do, although there are certain things that God commands us to do and to not do as followers of Jesus, but it's about who we are and who we are becoming that makes us disciples of Jesus. And I think this is what, what Jesus is getting at in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. You remember Now, the heading in my Bible, of course, you probably know those headings were not in the original. They were added just to kind of help us understand what the topic is. And my heading is true and false disciples. We want to be true disciples. We don't want to be false disciples. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I think what he's saying there is like people who know he's Lord, who believe certain things to be true about him, just because you have theological knowledge and truth, that's not what it's all about at the end of the day, Jesus says. Maybe you know someone who's, man, boy, they knew their Bible, they could throw out verses like nothing, maybe they even taught Sunday school classes. But they went home, and they were awful to their wife, and they were a vengeful person and a greedy person, and they had an anger problem. They did not have the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. All right, well, what is that? What is the will of the Father? He continues, Jesus, He says, many of you will say to me on that day, the day when you and me and every one of us will stand before and give an account to God for our lives, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I, what he's saying there is it, it's not about theological knowledge and it's not just about the things you do and accomplish. How many times you go to church? using the gifts you have to serve in different ways, right? Like, it's not about your deeds and actions. These people, they were doing all of these things. Jesus says, that's not what it's about. What is the will of the Father, then, that marks us as His disciples, the disciples of Jesus? Well, Jesus alluded to it. John 13, verse 34, 35, Jesus says, A new command I give you, to love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. How will they know? Because they know a whole lot of biblical truth? It's because they do certain things and don't do other things? No, it will because it will, they will be marked by a life of love. There will be certain things that are true about their character which will mark them as a disciple of Jesus. And love, of course, was the first fruit of the Spirit, and, and I would say it's, this, it's, it's that fruit from which all other fruit flows. And this is what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 13 when he, when he says, you can have faith that moves mountains, and you can, you can uh, fathom all knowledge, and you can have speak in the 
tongues of angels and of men, and you can have all these spiritual gifts. But if you have not love, you are, you know how it goes? You're nothing. You're nothing. You're nothing but a clanging gong, a clanging cymbal. At the end of the day, it's not about what you know. It's not even about what you do. It's about who you are. It's about character transformation, interchange on the inside that flows out. And that's what this is all about, these fruit of the Spirit. These are those things, those characteristics that will be growing in the life of every disciple of Jesus. That might seem a little daunting. Whoa! Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's a little daunting to live a sort of life like that. I mean, how you doing? But, I mean, the good news is these are called the fruit. These aren't the fruit of rusty. These aren't the fruit of hard work. These are the fruit of the Spirit. You know, when Jesus said, um, many will say to me on, on that day, didn't we do all these things? And I will say to them, I never knew you. He didn't say, you didn't know me, which is what I would have expected him to say. He said, I never knew you, which is to say, if God knows us, there will be certain things that are true about us, Right? It's not about us knowing God, it's about God knowing us. I think that's Jesus' way of saying, hey, when you give your life to God by faith in Jesus Christ, not only does God give you the gift of forgiveness and the gift of eternal life, He gives you the gift of His Spirit that He puts within you, to dwell in you, to bring about change, to bring about these fruit, this transformation that will be growing in the life of someone who is the Spirit of God who is a true disciple of Jesus. In other words, it's God's work in us which we cooperate with. So the fruit of gentleness. You know, if I were to make a list of the top nine characteristics that might define a, a, a disciple of Jesus, would, would I put in there gentleness? Would you put in there gentleness? I don't know. Because like I, I've, I've prayed for these other things, like, God, give me love. Help me to be more loving. God, help me to be more patient in this situation. God, would you restore my joy? God, would you just give me peace in this situation? Like, you've probably asked God for help in those areas. I don't know that I've ever recalled saying, God, can you make me more gentle? You ever prayed that prayer? God, can you make me more gentle? I don't think I've ever prayed that. And I wonder if it's because... I'm not really sure what it means to be gentle. What is that? I mean, it seems to be really important, but what is it? I mean, maybe you're like me, and, and, and I would have associated that more with like a, a temperament or a, a personality trait of someone who's just a little more laid back, just someone who's soft, um, if I'm honest, maybe weak, or someone who's more timid by nature, someone who's more passive, not as assertive, someone who tends to be a pushover or a doormat. There's all these organizations, uh, the, the Lions and the Rotary and the Elk and all of them, and uh, there's, this is a real organization that somebody started called the Doormats. You can join the Doormats. It stands for the Dependent Organization of Really Meek and Timid Souls. And their slogan is, the meek shall inherit the earth, if that's okay with everybody. <laughs> Don't want to rock the boat. Don't want to rock the boat. Just be the back. Is that, what does it mean to be gentle? And what we're going to see is it really isn't that at all. 
I mean, this was a rich, colorful word back in the biblical times there in the Greek. It's, it's the same word from which we get humility and meekness. And it was a word that was used for an ointment. Like if you had a sore, a wound, and you put on an ointment that took away the sting of the wound, that brought relief from the pain, that was called a gentle ointment. That word, that same word was used. It was a word that was used of a horse that had been wild but had been tamed. That horse was now, it was wild, now it's gentle. Now, I don't think a tame horse is any less powerful than a wild horse. It's got the same strength, it just uses it differently, right? It's strength under control. And maybe that's a good definition for gentleness, strength under control. And as we go to the Bible here and we look at how this word is used, we're going to find that it really is a very relational word. It's, it's often related, coupled with humility. Humility, they come from the same root word. Humility is about how you relate to yourself, like your own self-image. Gentleness is kind of the corresponding word about how you relate to other people. So it is a word that whenever, as we're going to see here, whenever it's used, it it speaks to a dynamic in relationship, in interaction. And so, for instance, Proverbs 15, verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So here it seems to be the opposite of being harsh. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 1 Peter 3.15, Peter says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you, but do so with gentleness and respect. Because there is a way of answering questions about our faith that aren't very gentle. So you're a Christian. Why do you think that? Sometimes those questions are are very genuine. Sometimes they come with more of a Negative, harsh, accusatory sort of tone. Whenever you answer, always do it with gentleness. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. If someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. So it's a word that's always used um, to to describe how you're, you're supposed to relate to someone in a situation where there's conflict or crisis or a challenge. It speaks of using words and and maybe even actions and certainly our tone in in a very careful way to soothe strong emotions, to put out fires. Let's go back to that reference there in Galatians chapter 6, the last verse I quoted, because that just comes a few verses after this listing of the uh, fruit of the Spirit, and uh, so there's probably... Some further insight there. So after Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, he says in verse 24 of Galatians 5, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, God's Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. How do we keep in step with the Spirit? Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Now, what does it mean to be conceited? Normally, we think it's someone who's got a big head. They're all into themselves. That's kind of half true. To be conceited is a preoccupation with yourself. It's self-absorption. 
I've heard it said that humility isn't thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. So, so being conceited is, uh, is kind of a, this, this absorption with self, and that can take a couple different forms because he goes on to elaborate. He says, don't provoke one another or envy one another. And as I was studying this, the scholars say these are actually two different ways of being conceited, provoking and envying, two different ways of relating to others in unhealthy ways. Provoking is, is this, this attitude of being superior, Right? to look down upon, to be condescending, to be condemning, to view oneself as better and higher and as the winner and the other person as the loser. That's to be provoking, right? That would be to have an inflated sense of self. And to envy the other is the opposite of that. It's, it's to have an inferior attitude, right? Where you're not the one looking down. You always feel like you're the one looking up to people that have more, that are better, to feel like you're the loser, an inferiority complex. And both of those are different ways of being self-absorbed and conceited. And both of them will inflame a situation. Right? Whether you have an inflated self-image or whether you have an inferior self-image, Paul says it will inflame a situation where there's challenge or crisis or conflict. And the gospel, he says, frees us from that. The gospel frees us from conceit. The gospel of Jesus. It frees us from being too confident in ourself or self-disdaining. The gospel humbles us. Right when Jesus began that great sermon, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, how did he begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You can't get into the kingdom unless you first recognize how poor you are in spirit. Right, so the gospel, it, it, it's a really humbling thing. It tells us that we are, every one of us, you are a sinner in need of the mercy of God. That you are not good, or certainly not good enough in and of yourself. You need the mercy of God in everything that you are and everything that you have. You are by God's grace. You have nothing to boast about in yourselves. So the gospel humbles us because it tells us about our true state. And if that's all the gospel was, then, then it would be harsh, not gentle. But it doesn't just humble us, it emboldens us because it says, in spite of who we are, our neediness, our brokenness, that in Jesus we know that we are seen, we are loved, we are cared for and honored by the only eyes in the universe that truly count. That regardless of who we are and in spite of who we are, God cares deeply for you, and He loves you so much that He would give His Son, Jesus, to win you back into right relationship with Him. How should that make you feel? Inferior? Not at all. Lesser than another? Not at all. That emboldens you. And so this is, this is how the gospel frees us from this conceit, this absorption with ourself, it both humbles us and it emboldens us at the same time. And so I think that's what Paul is saying is that's the formula for gentleness we're going to see here. So I mean, if, if gentleness had an equation, I think it would be this. It would be that humility plus boldness equals gentleness. We need both of those things. As he'll go on to say here in Galatians 6, verse 1, when he says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should re restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, 
or you also may be tempted. You know, when someone's made a mess of something or they're doing something destructive, maybe in general or against you, how should you approach that person? How should you relate to that person? And he says, you should seek to, if you're a spiritual person, spirit-filled person, to restore that person gently. And that's such an important word there, right? Gently. Because if, 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 if we do not approach that humbly, if we come to a place of superiority better than, we're going to be harsh. We're going to pile on, we're going to condemn, we're going to punish. We're going to judge. Do it gently. And that's what he means when he says, watch yourselves or you may also be tempted. I used to think that meant tempted to to, to fall into the same sin you're trying to correct that person from. Like, oh, this person's got a porn problem and you're trying to help them and be careful lest you fall into that same problem. That that might be like a true thing to guard yourself against, but that's not what he's talking about. If you go on, you're going to see that he's talking about not falling into the temptation of pride. Don't think that you're better than anybody else. Because as soon as you think that you're better, you're superior, you will not restore, right? You will not build up, you will tear down. You will condemn. And so we need humility, but we also need to be bold and not those who shrink away from stepping into a difficult situation and seeking to bring about Healing and restoration and truth and help. So, so, I mean, if there's a fire raging that needs to be put out, you can do one of two things. You can either add fuel to the fire. He says, don't add fuel to the fire. But then have the courage to step in and try to put out the fire. Instead of just stepping back in fear with a lack of boldness and cowardice and not doing anything. You are to restore the other person gently. What does that look like? To operate with gentleness. I came across this little story. There's a pastor and author by the name of Stu Weber, and he was just recounting about how in his youth, he was just someone who really struggled with temper and rage issues, and then he went into the military, and that didn't help. And then he came out of the military and he went into ministry and he stopped playing church league basketball altogether because we know church league sports is the worst, right? Church league hockey. I remember being a medicine hat, the medicine hat church softball league. My church, Heights Baptist, we were too small to have our own team, so we paired up with another little small church down the road, the Evangelical Free Church. They had a great pastor, forget his name, great guy. I remember the day I saw him blow up on the field, yell at the person who we thought made the wrong call, storm to the dugout, grab his stuff, go in his car and drive away mid-game. Yeah, pastors can do that too. I mean, I never have. Don't talk to my wife. So this guy, you know, I guess he had this problem. Tend to come out around sports. Um, his temper would flare. He'd embarrass himself in his church. But a decade had passed, and he'd grown. He said, "I hadn't had a flash of temper for years. I thought that the, you know, the Lord's been good. I, I'm actually growing in this." And then his oldest son went into basketball, high school basketball. And he said, "I began living my life through my son again." And he started to terrorize the referees. 
And on one occasion, he was seated in the second row, and something happened, and Weber wound up on the floor level with no recollection of how he got there in a rage, yelling at the referees. And he received nasty letters from church members who he says, you know, they were absolutely right on. But, you know, those sort of letters, pastor, like, you, you can't do that. That's terrible. You're embarrassing. You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing the church. You need to stop that. He says, they were right. But he says, but then he got another note. The note said this, Stu, I know your heart. I know that's not you. I know that you want to live for Christ and His reputation. And I know that's not happened at these ball games. If it would be helpful to you, I'd come to the game with you and sit beside you. He went on to say, Steve saved my life. It was an invitation, a gracious extension of truth. He assumed the best and he believed in me and was willing not just to speak the truth, but to come alongside and help. That's gentleness, right? Anybody can just speak the truth. As Christians, we're not just called to be truth tellers. We're called to be those who speak the truth in love. There's a verse more than any other that's it's quoted in the Hildebrand household, Ephesians 4.29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is useful for building others up according to their need. If you've got kids at home, that's a great verse to memorize. You'll use that one a lot. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but to be for us adults need it too, but only that which is useful for building others up according to their need. Not according to what their wishes are. Gentleness is not flattery. It's not, it's not a shrinking back from the truth out of a fear of offending. That's not gentleness. That's being timid. That's weakness. Gentleness is powerful. Gentleness is the, 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 the strength of being able to step into a situation where tensions are high, where there might be conflict and challenges, and, and maybe carefully deliver the truth, but do it in a way that's, that builds up that is useful and helpful and encouraging and inspiring to the other. That's gentleness. And our world needs that right now, doesn't it? This whole COVID thing, and I know it's almost every Sunday I talk about it, but for goodness sakes, it's our life. Masks and vaccines and regulations and all this stuff, and we're sick of it. And we like to tell people that we're sick of it. And we like to write on Facebook that we're sick of it. And we like to maybe confront other people that think differently than we think about it. Right now, there's a lot of harshness, words that are used. And even if they're true, they are not helpful. They do not build up. They're true, but they're not loving. They are not gentle. Our world desperately needs gentleness in society right now, online with everything going around us. But we need it in our homes too, in our marriages, which is why the Bible says, husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. And Paul says, parents, do not be harsh with your children. It's easy to tell your kids where they failed and what they need to do better and what they should do and to say it louder and louder. But as a parent, you ever had that moment of realization as, as the decibels go up, you just sit them down and you put your arm around the shoulder and you speak kind words affirming their fear or their anxiety or their heart or whatever, 
and you deliver their truth, but you show how it's for their good and you offer to help, to be there, to do, to be whatever you need to be, to help in that area. We need that in our families. We need to act that way when we receive correction ourselves because sometimes we're on the receiving end of maybe being gently restored, something being brought to our attention. And I don't know about you, but I can, I can come here and I can tell you I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. And I can sing and I can praise God and declare I'm a sinner in need of God's grace. But if you come and you tell me I'm a sinner and you point out one of those sins, who do you think you are? My back goes up. Well, yeah, I do that, but Erica, I mean, hypothetically, good thing this isn't recorded. But Erica, but you spend money on that, and it becomes a battle, and a gentle spirit, I mean, I guess one of the evidences of that is a person is able to receive a corrective word whether it's delivered in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way. Thank you. I'll give that some thought. We need gentleness. It's the only thing that puts out fires. Where does that gentleness come from? Well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Verses 28 to 30, he says, and you probably know these words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, say it with me, gentle. Who's gentle? Jesus is gentle. Gentleness is for weak people? No, Jesus is gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, take my yoke. And learn from me. Take my yoke. Now, I mean, that was, that was the thing that the oxen had strapped to their back, right, when, when they did their work. And in, in biblical times, the yoke was kind of it, your responsibilities, your obligations, the things you had to do and carry. And in biblical, spiritual, religious terms, th- those were the laws of God, the commands. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you a lighter yoke. It's not that there's no yoke. I'm going to give you a lighter yoke. And he kind of alludes to that in Matthew 23. Listen to this. He's talking to his disciples. He says, Matthew 23, verses 1, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat, that is, preaching, proclaiming the, the, the word and the will of God. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you to do, But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. For they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They're willing to tell you what you need to do, but they have no interest in getting down into the mire and helping you do it. They say, you're on your own. That's the yoke they put, that heavy yoke that they put on the people. 
But listen to the way the Old Testament describes this Messiah that God would send, who is Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment as the Messiah of these words. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 to 3, a prophesy about the Messiah, it says, Here is my servant who I, who I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Now listen to this. He will not shout or cry out. Now this is Jesus. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Okay, this is our Jesus, who we follow. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. He comes and he sees our weakness, and he understands our weakness, and he's not going to do anything to destroy us but to restore us. That's His heart. That's what He's going to come to do. And so Zechariah 9.9, one of those other prophecies of the Messiah, it said, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. Your king comes to you gentle. Not like those other kings that come on the war horses with power and might and a big sword to conquer To, over, to overcome, no, your king is going to come gentle and riding on a donkey. And you know how the story plays out. He does ride into Jerusalem gentle riding on a donkey as they all shouted, Hosanna. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he walked into that place and he walked to the cross to die willingly. He gave himself up. He who knew no sin, he gave himself up for you and me, broken, wounded, needy, sinful, evil people. To pay our debt, to win for us forgiveness, and bring us into reconciliation with God. He did that for us, our gentle Jesus. And so we all know John 3.16, but the very next verse is great too. John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. I love that. He didn't come just to tell us what we were doing wrong and how we needed to shape up and change. He came, yes, to tell us the truth about ourselves and then to get down into the pit and help us and help us become who we needed to be. Help us to change. That's why I chuckle whenever I hear someone say, oh, yeah, I'd go to church, but then, you know, the building would probably fall down on my head, get struck by lightning. I ever went there, <laughs> I chuckled. You don't know Jesus, do you? Gentle Jesus, like the one who he came and he knew all of our sin and all of our grime, and he came and he loved us so much that he gave himself up. He's not one who desires to condemn, he is one who desires to restore. Not to tear down, but to build up. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is the gentleness of God. That He came not just to tell us the truth about ourselves, but to do everything that was necessary to change. And so our Jesus is gentle. He's been gentle with you. And He continues to be. Right? 
Hebrews, the author says, Jesus is your perfect high priest. He's experienced everything you've experienced, all your weaknesses. He lived all of life so that he could sympathize, so that he could understand, so that you would know that God understands. So that you would know that if you feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick, you could come to God and you would not be broken and you would not be snuffed out. But that you would receive what you need in your time of need because He is a God of grace and gentleness. That's the God who we follow. That's the God who we desire to be like. So our gentleness is just a response to the gentleness of God shown to us in His Son, Jesus. So Jesus says, take my yoke, it's lighter, and learn from me, for I am gentle. You know, sometimes it's harder to define things like love or gentleness. It's easier just to see it, like you know it when you see it. And so Jesus modeled that for us in His life over and over again. You remember that woman at the well in John chapter 4? How many times has she been married? I mean, I think the last count, five times? Now she's with a sixth guy, obviously a wounded, wounded, broken person that's trying to fill some hole in her life in all sorts of destructive ways. And when Jesus comes to her, what does He do? Does He, does he tell her everything she's doing wrong and that she needs to do better? Does He just kind of speak the truth of her sin? No, He seeks to understand her, her wounds, what she truly needs, what she's yearning for, and then to point her to that thing which will truly satisfy her. Jesus was gentle with her. He didn't come to tear down but to build up. Same with that woman caught in adultery. Remember that, John chapter 8? This woman dragged out, thrown down before the teachers of the law, the rulers, the Pharisees. They were going to stone her in accordance with you know, the law of Moses because that's what you're supposed to do for a sin like that. They had a stone in their hands. Jesus, what would you do? And he says, he who is without sin, you can be the first one to throw the stone. Ah, he's a pretty smart guy. One by one, you know the story goes, they drop their stone and they leave and until it's just the two of them and Jesus says to the woman, you know, the one, the only one who could have thrown a stone, the only one who, perf- who did not have any sin? Has no one condemned you, woman? No one, Lord. Well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. God does not desire, delight, want to punish, condemn. He's always looking by telling the truth, by pointing people away from their sin to something better to help them to build up, to restore and you see that with Peter at the end of the Gospel of John. You know, that Peter, the Peter that blew it. Three times he denied Jesus and Jesus' hour of need. He blew it and he was going to have to carry that disappointment with him for the rest of his life. If Jesus would take him back, you know, he'd definitely be demoted and that'd be hanging over his head. And, and then he meets the risen Jesus. And you know how the story goes. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Great, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know I love you. A third time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's, how can I, how can I build up? He didn't say, Peter, you really blew it back there. You failed. I'm going to need you to do better. He could have done that. But that's not the Jesus way, it's the gentle way. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, only that which is useful for building others up according to their need. Whatever the situation was, Jesus used His words 
to build up and to help restore, not to tear down, to point people away from their sin to something better, to help, not to harm, and that takes strength. To be a wild horse, anybody can be a wild horse throwing around words, throwing around emotions, that's weakness. But gentleness, that's strength. Remember Proverbs? It said, a gentle tongue can break a bone. Gentleness has great power in relationships, in churches, in society. It is the power to empower others. And maybe that's, as I close here, maybe that's the definition. Maybe that's what gentleness is. Gentleness is to use your power to empower others to achieve something better. So my question for you is, are you growing in gentleness? As one who follows Jesus, are you growing in gentleness? I mean, I know we're, we're, not, we're not perfect. We're not there yet. But are you growing in gentleness? Maybe as I've been talking here, maybe God has spoken to you and, and like He's kind of shone a light on some area of your life. Maybe it's some relationship or maybe it's some area of your life where you need to use more gentleness in order to soothe strong emotions and to build up another. To put out a fire instead of inflame it. So what I want to give us a, do here, uh, a chance to do here as we, as we close is to pray, as we do. Because, you know, like this is God is here. God speaks through His Word. God speaks in us through His Spirit. And so now we don't just go home and eat, eat our lunch and carry on with our day. Now we ask God, okay, God, all this being the case, like what does this mean for me? So I want to give you an opportunity just to take a moment in quietness to talk with God and ask Him a, that question. Let's pray. Take a moment first just to thank God for His gentleness that He has shown you in a sense and how He continues to, sh to, to, to show that to you in your life, um, in His ongoing grace that He offers to you. Just take, just thank Him. Take another moment just to ask God, God, is there any area in my life where I'm lacking in gentleness, where I'm, I'm speaking and acting in such a way that even if it's truthful, it's not useful, it's not helping, it's not, it's not building up another? Um, God, if there's that area in my life, would you show that to me right now and would you empower me to be gentle? Just take a moment to pray that prayer. Father God, we love you so much. 
We love you because you have loved us first. Even though we're broken, needy people, Lord, you have loved us through your Son. In Jesus, Lord, you have done everything for us to make us new, make us right with you. You've done everything that was necessary, Lord, just to empower us to live in a better way. So God, as we think on your gentleness, I I just pray, God, for us as your people here, that we in kind would, would be gentle with those around us. Or would you show us what that looks like as we leave here? Lord, as, as we go back to our homes, some, many of us, we will have family in our homes. We might have a spouse, we might have kids, workplaces, neighborhoods, friends, opponents online, people who think radically different than us, about all this COVID stuff. Lord, I, would you just show us, God, what it looks like to bring your gentleness into all of these places in our life? Lord, would you just give us the power by your Spirit to always take such care with our words and our actions so that we wouldn't just be those that, that speak the truth, that we would want more than just to be uh, truth-tellers, but that we would want to be builders to build up others, Lord, um, help us to be gentle. In Jesus' name, amen.